So God sovereignly intervenes, hurls a wind at the ship, a great storm, and after spending three days and three nights in the belly of a fish that was also a provision by God, God then resurrects that previously uh, reluctant prophet, and and then uh, Jonah submits and declares salvation is from the Lord. He's going to do what the Lord says. And after that, that type of resurrection from the deep, Jonah takes a message of repentance to the Gentiles in Nineveh. They hear, they respond. God saves them. This is a sign of Jonah some 760 years before Christ is even born. Jesus describes it as a sign of Jonah. And as he spoke to the spiritual leaders of his day in Israel, Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty nine, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. So, so Jesus tipped his hat. Actually, he gave the answer. Uh, unfortunately, the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders, they were spiritually blind. They still refused to see. I think Jerry talked about that extensively this morning in the Bible Life group. And Jesus told them, think, think of Jonah now. Jesus told them in John 5, beginning in verse 39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me but you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Jesus saying these scriptures you're looking at, which was the Old Testament Torah at that time, and the prophets and the Proverbs, he's saying these testify about me. We've seen that even in Jonah here. And this, this whole entirety of scripture, it's all a testimony of Jesus Christ. Yet as we've learned, unregenerate man left to himself doesn't want to see. He wants to go his own way blind and unwilling, and the Holy Spirit, uh, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2.14, must illumine the Word of God to us so that we can see our reflection and see that we're a sinner in need of a saver, Savior. God instigates, we respond. You know, the picture of Christ in the Old Testament, especially in Jonah here, is so brilliant. It's so vivid that Satan schemes to destroy any historical evidence to it or reference to it uh, a friend of um, Al Fernandez his name is Kareem and, and Al was telling me this story just a few weeks ago after stu- looking through Jonah here and and uh, told me about his friend Kareem and his Al's friend Kareem originates from this very region it's now modern day Mosul and, and that is the city of Nineveh that was buried under it, and the remains that they've discovered, uh, the remains of the wall and, and other things. And this friend Kareem is a Christian from Mosul, from that area. And the Christians there in that region celebrate the sign of Jonah. It is a very big part of their culture. Though they're a minority in a Muslim nation, the, the, this remains of Nineveh, this, this sign of Jonah, it's a really big deal to them. And in their heritage. And they celebrate that story because it was the first reaching of the Gentiles outside of Israel. Jonah was the only prophet ever sent outside of Israel to reach Gentiles. And they celebrate that. So uh, Jonah is especially significant to them. I've got a few photos here 
of today of modern-day Mosul. It demonstrates how ISIS is seeking to destroy any archaeological evidence to Nineveh or Jonah. Here we have some archaeological rebuild of the city gate in, uh, in Nineveh. And uh, the next slide will show us what ISIS is doing right now to the walls and the gates that were reconstructed by the archaeologists, even, even the secular archaeologists, uh, bulldozing them down. They don't want any reference to it. The next, please, there's some more going down. Gates and tunnels and other things being pushed in by large earth-moving equipment. Um, next, this in Mosul right here is what is traditionally the tomb of Jonah. No kidding. This is the tomb that is celebrated as Jonah's tomb right there in what is modern-day Nineveh. And this is after, uh, next picture is after Isis. Oh, that's the, the entrance to that tomb. Really a magnificent structure. Been there for, for many, many years. And uh, this is what happened after Isis got a hold of it. They wired it, detonated it with explosives. They blew it too. The next frame shows rubble. You see all the rubble coming down in the front there. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Sure, there are more reasons than we can, can just mention at in, in one time. There's political reasons, there's other reasons. But this archaeological evidence of history uh, is being destroyed. I, I believe, quite honestly, these are visible signs of salvation that has gone to the Gentiles previously. They're a reminder of Christ himself through the prophet Jonah and Nineveh. That's the reason that uh, the enemies of God want to destroy it. It's a sign of Jonah, sign of the gospel. Um, another sign that God has arrived in a culture, as I had mentioned here just a few moments ago, it's a drastic change in human behavior. When the gospel comes to, to the Gentiles or to any nation, uh, there's a change in behavior. In chapter 8, uh, excuse me, a verse 8 of chapter 3 in Jonah, the king of Nineveh declares this. He says, But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, the king says, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we all will not perish. Apart from God, uh, apart from the Holy Spirit of God, apart from the diligence of God's people to obey, a nation has no hope. Apart from Christians being diligent to obey what they know, uh, a nation has no hope. And and as uh, part of Leviticus 18, which I read to you earlier, uh, suggests defilement, especially that of sexual immorality, it will permeate a culture. It will permeate a culture. This isn't an Old Testament phenomenon that we read in Leviticus 18. Uh, it actually will spread like leaven. And the Apostle Paul implies even in the church, even among spirit-indwelt Christians, you have to be concerned about this. You have to be cautious of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, here we're even speaking to the church, Paul speaking to the church, a man in the congregation had been behaving immorally with his father's wife. And the members of the congregation, they'd become arrogant. They had just dismissed it as not a big deal. That behavior is going to be all right. They didn't mourn like we talked about 
last week and the week before, mourning. They didn't grieve over sin. Paul told them in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Was Paul concerned that a little bit might spread everywhere, even among Christians? When, when, when behavior is just openly tolerated. So even among spirit-indwelt Christians, if care isn't taken, if, if, if concern isn't voiced at some level, immorality will spread, it will expand like leaven. So it's no surprise then in Leviticus 18 that God warned Israel too about the nations that had preceded them in the land. Um, these things were practiced beforehand, he says. Keep my statutes in Leviticus 18. And in verse 27, keep these statutes for the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled. He says, so, so keep my statutes so that the land will not spew you out should you defile it as it has spewed out the nation which has been there before you. So as I, as I emphasized earlier in our scripture reading as we read it, these practices, they're not isolated. It's not rare. Three times between verses 24 and 30 in Leviticus 18, God himself reemphasizes all of those types of immorality. All of them were practiced by all the nations before you. All of them. God means the whole chapter of 18, if you read from verse 1, includes things like incest, uh, fornication, verse 20, child sacrifice, verse 21, homosexuality, verse 22, and bestiality in verse 23. We're told all of these were commonly practiced. Have you ever thought to yourself um, in, this, in Leviticus 18 here, why were these child sacrifices to Molech? Um, why are they noted here in Leviticus 18 and forbidden along with all these various manifestations of sexual immorality? Why child sacrifice sandwiched in with all these others throughout the whole chapter of Leviticus 18? Verse 21 says, You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech. That was child sacrifice, the life of the child, if you're not familiar. Not any. Don't give any. Do you think that the children born out of adultery and fornication, you know, those unplanned pregnancies that we hear about today, do you think that they were more commonly sacrificed to the god Molech if people wanted to get rid of them because of things like sexual immorality, premarital sex, extramarital sex, Why do you suppose the largest percentage of abortions today are from extramarital sex, premarital sex? Um, we talk about abortion we have in the past. There's a cause to abortion. Fornication. As we look at the sanctity of human life, a, a major contributor to abortion is just children as a result of sex outside of the marriage bonds. Nobody wants them. Nobody wants them. And one primary reason that fornication is a root cause of abortion 
in America is we haven't reemphasized to our children just how important it is to reserve sex for marriage. Very important. Uh, abortions are a symptom of a greater problem. A symptom of a greater problem. We can't just say we need to stop abortions. We also need to talk to people and, and instruct people, especially our own, our own people, about the holiness of God and, and, and our need to uh, with, with, uh, withdraw from sin. Uh, all of the behaviors in Leviticus 18 that we read, all of them are practiced in America today. Don't fool yourself. All. Um, bestiality, it has not hit the mainstream media yet. We haven't seen it on television yet. But unless we see a revival of Christ's church and spirituality in America, in our lifetime we are going to see allusions to it on television. I'm quite certain of that. It's not just speculation. Because all the nations before have gone to that level. Um, it will begin if we don't have a spiritual revival. It will begin with light-hearted comedy and allusions to it on television. Small allusions. There'll be jokes about it. People will start openly joking about it just as they started open, openly joking about homosexuality three or four decades ago. Then it becomes acceptable. Because, because the people who played those roles on television, you know, they were, they were attractive personalities. They were funny people. We could laugh with them about their behavior. Then it became normalized. It's, it's now in the process of normalization. And, and without a spiritual change, it's going to happen the same with animals, folks. It will. It has happened to all the nations who've, who've kept God out of, um, out of their culture. It will happen with pets. We already see pets being dressed up as people. Cute sometimes, it is. Some, are, uh, some people are already fighting for legislation to give pets protections as humans. You know that's going on. Um, we're referring to them. And I know they're cute. I love animals. I do. I've had a lot of pets over the years. We're referring to them as our babies when they are not our babies, folks. They're not. And, and while our babies are being sacrificed to Moloch, we must stop attributing human value to beasts, to animals, while disposing of our children like animals, folks. We've got to get our priorities straight. We need to be warned, because if it doesn't get discussed, it will happen. It will happen. Um, if we do not turn back to God's Word, uh, you and I will see legislation presented for marriage to animals. It, the movement's already begun. Um, I'm dead serious. Not joking. It's not isolated behavior. It's not a rare thing. God told Israel, all of these nations before you defiled themselves with these things. We need to prepare ourselves ahead of time that immorality is not humorous. It's not funny. And I believe this is the reason that Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, saying, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must not be any filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. 
For you know, for this you know a certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now we see in verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness. For it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Interesting there. You know, I don't believe this, this prohibition on filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting means all types of sarcasm or poking a little fun here and there or having a good laugh uh, as it's appropriate. I don't think it means that we just have to be somber and can never enjoy ourselves or be lighthearted or, or share a joke. I think it means... Uh, quite clearly in context about immorality, it says Christians mustn't joke about impurity or immorality. That's not a funny laughing matter. Uh, Even on the job site, when we go out on the job site, people will laugh about things because it lends to normalizing that behavior. The more you laugh about it, the more acceptable it becomes. So we don't joke about it. We don't coarse jest about it. We don't do silly talk about it. Um... According to Romans chapter 1, there is a natural progression of unbridled depravity when you do so. And uh, especially when you separate God from a culture. Which brings up a good question you might have, like bestiality, uh, about things like that. Should Christians even talk about them? You know, some folks want to outlaw the Bible. You shouldn't even be able to read that. Pretty striking stuff. Um... I thought about this leading up to this week. Should we even talk about it with our teenagers present? Or should we just have a, a, you know, a little class of just the church leaders to talk, to talk about it? Um, the answer is we need to talk about it. We must, uh, must cite these scriptures. Scripture talks about it. Scripture is holy. It is God's precious word. It talks about it, so we must talk about it. And if we don't instruct our teenagers about what is right and what is immoral... And what is prohibited and, and what is not funny, if we don't do that, the world surely will. If they aren't exposed to it somewhere, where better place than church to understand what God finds as unacceptable? Um, the world's been educating our children. That, that's part of the reason we're in such a pinch that we are today. We need to know what's right and what's wrong. Much of our nation, including myself, spent you know, just years in church, growing up in a church that wouldn't even mention these things. Returning to Jonah, why did I go down this road? You're like, does this tie into anything? I hope it does. I hope it does. Back to Jonah. Looking at all we've looked at, is the systematic progression of immorality that's described in Romans 1, and which we learn is practiced by all the nations previous to Israel, are those evidences enough to be suspicious that the reason the beasts were covered with sackcloth and the reason that the animals were denied food and water is because Nineveh realized that their immoral behavior towards animals was part of the reason for God's judgment. Is that why they dressed him up? Um, had it progressed that far 
in that culture and had such behavior become so commonplace, so, so accepted that everyone knew what the king was talking about when he gave his declaration. They knew why they were covering the beasts with sackcloth and denying them food and water um, along with their own expression of remorse. Is that the reason? I'm going to be completely honest. None of the commentaries that I have consulted are willing to attach bestiality as the reason the animals were covered with sackcloth and forced to fast. None of them will attach that. Um, that this is primarily because the text doesn't provide us the reason. You can read it there. It doesn't say why. Um, you'll see in most of your study Bibles, they simply cite you know, a Persian custom that included animals in ceremonies of mourning. But if you read the most in-depth material out there, uh, the sources historically, they also admit that there's no historical evidence that animals were used in mourning ceremonies in Mesopotamia during this time period. They can't attach that either to what's going on in Nineveh. Uh, there's no historical evidence that, it w- that that practice occurred there just for mourning ceremonies. So that view is also somewhat speculative. You're going to have to decide yourself what has the most merit. Uh, my impression is based on three things. My suspicion is based on three things. Number one, Leviticus implies that most cultures without God will eventually devolve to such behavior. Number two, in a very short book like Jonah, the king's declaration references animals twice. Remember we learn in the Hebrew language that when something's repeated, that adds emphasis. That's repeated twice. So the animals there are not just a footnote of what was going on. It's not just a, in a short book like this, just thrown in for filler. Number three, Nineveh's immorality had gotten so advanced that the Hebrews suggest God was going to level Nineveh in the same way he did Sodom. So it was really bad. We know that. So uh, regardless, the immorality had turned very, very bad. Very bad. Um, But you have to be cautious in reading things into the text like that. It doesn't say it. Uh, That's slippery. It's a dangerous slope to just start reading in things that aren't there. Whether or not you agree with that explanation, um, we do know from verse 8 that Nineveh had turned wicked and violent. Wicked and violent. The king proclaimed, Let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, the king says, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. The king's petition is evidence in itself that their destiny is outside their control. They can't control their destiny. Uh, Nineveh's sins, the king is saying, merit God's judgment. What they have done merits God's judgment. Do you agree with me on that? God's under no moral obligation to spare Nineveh. Is that correct? I'm glad we agree on that. In fact, Scripture agrees we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone's under the same weight. And the wages of those sins is judgment through death, even death on a cross. 
So God's only responsibility to be fair is to justly punish sin. That is his only moral obligation, is to punish sin appropriately. That's all he's bound to do. Um, We must understand that everyone on the planet is sinful. Everyone has disobeyed God. It, it, It doesn't matter if you've heard about Jesus. That doesn't play in the criteria of God's being fair. Um, Not everyone is going to hear about Jesus. God's not morally obligated to ensure everyone on the planet has an equal access to hear about Jesus. How would you even come up with that? Not everybody has the equal opportunity to hear. The only moral obligation God has as a righteous judge, pure and holy, is to punish sins. That's his only obligation. That's God's only responsibility for being fair, is that all sin must be punished fairly, regardless where you were raised on the planet. So everyone is under the weight, the burden of sin. If not a Christian, you will suffer for your own sin for eternity in hell. That's what Scripture says. You may finally wake up someday and realize that Jesus gave Himself to suffer the penalty of that same sin. That He gave Himself as an offering for sin. But regardless, all sins will be justly punished by God. That's what He's obligated to do morally as a just judge. That's only God's only responsibility for fairness. You can figure out which you prefer. Suffer for your sins yourself or accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's simple. But the fact that someone hasn't heard about Jesus doesn't mean that their punishment is unjust. God is just. He's always just. Um, Nineveh had been both wicked and violent. The term wicked in verse 8, it's a very general term. Uh, All types of violations of conscience. Anytime that you know something is wrong. It's wicked. It's wicked. Everyone is guilty of these. I'm guilty of these. You're guilty of these. Um, By comparison, the other phrase, which we're pretty much all guilty of as well, is the phrase, the violence which is in his hands. That's more damning. Includes all kinds of unjust behavior that promotes violence. Violence. Uh, It describes cruelty, injustice, oppression, violence. And and the king says, it's the violence that's in their hands. Interesting. He's got good theology for a pagan king. Without God's guidance, all all men's hands are unjust. They're cruel. We seek our own. We are the source of injustice. Our sinful selves. Uh, hands here are representative of the source of our behavior. It's the reason in Numbers chapter 8 that the sons of Israel were required to come and lay their hands on the Levitical priests. If you read back there, Leviticus 8, uh, Numbers 8, excuse me. The Levitical priests then, at their consecra- consecration, uh, after their consecration, they would lay their hands on the bulls that were going to be sacrificed, the ones that were going to die for sin. The laying on of hands was an identification. I'm placing my identification with the Levitical priests 
the priests then are going to identify with the bulls and other animals that are sacrificed. I'm identifying that that animal is dying in place of me. That was a good part of their theology. That sin must uh, demands a punishment of death. So hands are an identifier of, of responsibility. Let's put it that way. Uh, Israel was acknowledging their hands were symbolically uh, representing themselves. That God had to have a sacrifice. Had to have one. Uh, hands are very symbolic of sin. Even on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would, would drive that scapegoat out into the wilderness. Remember, there's two goats. One goat, it wouldn't go so well. The other scapegoat, they'd identify with sins, and the, the high priest would drive it off into the wilderness. And, and, and the high priest would put his hands on its head before driving it off into the wilderness. And as it would go, it was symbolic that God is saying, I remember your sins no more. It's gone. Hands are very symbolic of sins. It's the same reason Christians are taught in 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. If you were with us last summer, you studied through, us, through that with us. When we assemble together, it says that the men are to pray while lifting up holy hands. Not hands of wrath or dissension. Uh, lifting up holy hands or unstained hands is, an, is a good interpretation. Uh, unpolluted by our activities during the preceding week. Uh, you know, the, the passage doesn't suggest a certain worship posture. We talked about that previously. It's symbolic that when we come together, our hands are pure. You're lifting to the Lord holy, unstained hands that have not been polluted with the world before. doesn't indicate that sins are only committed with your hands, right? Many sins are, <coughs> excuse me, many sins are committed with the tongue, right? But to tell people to come to worship, lifting up holy tongues, well, that'd just be kind of weird, wouldn't it? So we lift up holy hands. Paul's reminding us to turn from our wicked ways. That's what the king is telling Nineveh. And he says, who knows? Who knows? God may relent, may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Nineveh had been offered no promise of salvation. No guarantee uh, the king's statement makes it pretty clear that God had not authorized Jonah to offer assurance. The king simply says, who knows? Maybe. Maybe God will turn away. Jonah's message and the king's proclamation, they're quite a contrast to what we're offered today in the New Testament. Very much a contrast. The king is confident of one thing from Jonah's declaration, God is angry. Burning anger. Uh, jo Jonah proclaimed, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. So, so we find here some similarities to the New Testament as well. Uh, God is angry. Destruction is imminent. It's coming. Uh, you have a set period of time to repent and to change. After such time, it will be too late. You have no idea what your expiration is. No idea whatsoever. Could be today. You simply have been promised in Romans 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. We'll all die and there will be judgment. There's going to be judgment because we have sinned, because God is angry with sin. 
Am I allowed to say that? God is angry with sin. God is so holy, so untainted by us, so pure, that he burns with anger towards sin. Burns with anger. It's described as God's wrath. And you might say, well, you know what? I'm a Christian. I've been taught, you know, God's not angry with my sin. Oh, really? God is angry with every one of your and my sins. In fact, God poured out His wrath on Christ for every sin that you and I continue to commit. Christ's atonement for every sin, it is precise, it is effectual, it is just. God poured out His burning anger against His Son so that God's wrath could be turned away from us. So God's still just as angry against sin as He's ever been. As a Christian, would that not be a motivation to repent and turn? Knowing that Christ suffered the sin for every, for every sin that would come after Him by believers? Space and time doesn't matter. It happened 2,000 years ago. But the wrath was poured out for everything we do. All sins were future when Christ suffered for them on the cross of all believers. We shouldn't be wanting to pile on. And, and God surely does love the world. There's a theology out there that through belief and through practice suggests that God is not angry about sin. God is just fine with your sin. Even Christians don't have to be concerned with turning from sin. God just loves you as you are. God just loves you. That's the end all of end alls, we're told. Um, That's not found in Scripture that God just loves you as you are. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. He didn't give the Son the love towards the world to the point that He's not worried about sin anymore. Nowhere do you get that in Scripture. Um, God surely does love the world enough to offer up His Son, but God's love, that would be agape in John 3.16. It's a self-giving, a self-sacrificing love. As if you might stand in front of your child and push him away as a car comes, and you're going to give up of yourself to sacrifice for another. Agape is an unmerited favor of God offered through His grace, and it is demonstrated through the cross. That's love. Absorbing the burning anger of God. Romans 5 verse 8. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Christ. We are spared from the wrath. God's still angry at sin. God's love redirects His wrath of our, for our sin away from us and towards Christ. Towards the cross. The king of Nineveh is right. God's anger burns against sin, any sin. And that's why at, right after John 3.16 comes, John 3.18, a couple verses later it says, He who believes in Jesus is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. That's why men love darkness so much. And after which, again, comes John 3, verse 36. If you page down just a little bit, which says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe the Son will not see life. Do you know what it says after that? But the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides. Think God isn't angry about sin? Well, he's angry about sin. And rather than the love of God uh, accurately describing our, a provision for our sin, uh, suffering through the cross, rather than that, rather than escape from God's wrath, we've allowed the definition of God's love to be distorted into a love of romance. That's what a lot of the younger generation is describing God's love as. It is a, it's a love of romance that just overlooks and dismisses any kind of fault. God's loving you to death. And the results are immature, false Christians sometimes who think they have a romantic love affair with Jesus. This is happening. This, this is the modern track of music as it's going. For their lyrics, I like all kinds of musics that are doctrinally sound. But this is the modern track of music's uh, music, excuse me. We're just singing a romantic love song to Jesus. Many young women embrace the impression that Jesus is their boyfriend rather than God and Savior. What did Thomas say? My Lord and my God. Young men, about the time they get to college age, decide, you know what, I'm not looking for a boyfriend. Like all the girls found in youth group. I don't want a boyfriend, I'm a man now. So they no longer want anything to do with Jesus. The older men who come up through this view Jesus as a wimp. Because he just writes love letters. Some older women view Jesus as the Prince Charming who didn't come through with their fairy tale. They were promised it repeatedly and repeatedly. Jesus never promises anyone a fairy tale. He gave... His followers a promise of, salva- of suffering. We're promised to suffer. He's given us a promise of salvation, that we can be saved from our sins. He's given us a promise that the wrath of God can be turned away from us through the cross. That's his promise. Unlike the king of Nineveh, you and I, we don't have to guess. Who knows? Maybe. No, it's much better than that. Salvation from God is a promise to all who will turn from their sins and believe in Christ. Um, very unlike the lack of assurance through Joan, uh, from the king. Uh, other differences. If you remember a couple weeks ago I talked about our message isn't the same message as Jonah's. Remember I was going to bring that up. I'm going to close out with that now. Unlike Jonah, we don't carry primarily a message of doom. That's not primarily our message. You know, so many Christians out there think that they're John the Baptist or something. You brood of vipers! 
You know, go around scaring people half to death like that. Um, that's not our message. John the Baptist's message is not our message. God gave different messages through different messengers to different audiences in different times. About the year 1830, a man named J.N. Darby, John Nelson Darby, he began referring to these diff, uh, different periods as dispensations. You probably heard it do it uh, to a theology called dispensationalism. We are dispensationalists here. It simply means that God didn't interact with each time period in the same way. Didn't have the same message. Didn't have the same responsibility of all eras. For instance, God's messages to various people are different. Abraham, go to a land that I will show you. King David, this was through the prophet Nathaniel, I will preserve your throne forever, God promised. Nineveh, he said, 40 days in judgment. In each of these dispensations of the times, uh, most identify there to be about seven different eras of dispensations. One of innocence in the garden before the fall of sin. One of conscience after they knew who they were. Uh, there are different, different eras of obedience. But there's a common thread. There's a common thread. Um, in each of these dispensations, people were required to respond to God's message through faith demonstrated with obedience. Through faith, demonstrated with obedience. Every generation of the Bible was saved by faith. Because without faith it is impossible to please God, right? Hebrews 11.6 Noah built an ark by faith. Abraham offered up Isaac by faith. Moses, he refused all the benefits of the Pharaoh's household and chose rather to be ill-treated with God's people. He wanted to get with God's people rather than have all the benefits of Pharaoh's household. So he did that by faith. Rahab welcomed the spies through faith. The writer of Hebrews simply says, What more shall I say? All these demonstrations of faith through obedience. So every generation has been saved through faith. And although uh, we are much different than Nineveh, our, our message is quite different than Jonah. We Christians carry God's message to our generation. That is what we do. That's our responsibility. It's not message, a message merely of judgment. In fact, it's a message of escape from judgment. That's what our message is. It's made possible through God's love. The Apostle Paul says to Corinth, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's Paul's primary thrust. Essentially, Paul's saying, We preach Christ and Him crucified. And a while back, I wrote a note in my Bible next to that verse, and it says this, It is not that Paul was blissfully ignorant of all the other subjects but the cross, but all topics led to and tied to the cross, and the redemption and reconciliation provided through the cross. Everything ties into it. And because we are in right now what most call a dispensation of grace, an era of grace, you and I don't have to think like the king had to think. I don't know. 
You think God will spare me? Well, he'll spare you. We have a promise. God has already put in place his promise of salvation, that he turns his burning anger away, and he has sealed it with this promise. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. That's a promise. Romans 10.9 Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. That is our promise of salvation.